Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of Revelation, the last book inside of the Bible, the book of Revelation and chapter number 19. The book of Revelation and chapter number 19. We're progressing forward in our series of the Millennial Kingdom, the thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have already put some foundational messages at the very beginning to explain our terms, to put things into context, to make sure that we have the correct interpretation and the correct understanding of these prophetic passages. We've hit the timeline of the things leading up to the events of the millennial kingdom. And now we're starting to hit some of the nuts and bolts dealing with the millennial kingdom. This morning we laid a foundation of the millennial kingdom speaking about the three different groups of people that will be found within the millennial kingdom. Now we're hitting a passage that is going to transition a very important idea. And may I say an idea that is often misunderstood and misapplied and that we definitely want to understand what the Bible has to say so we can get the correct interpretation and not be deceived by a lot of the false doctrine that is surrounding this very specific subject. So we find our way to the book of Revelation in chapter number 19. The book of Revelation and chapter number 19. Notice if you don't mind in the book of Revelation chapter 19 and let's begin starting at verse number 7. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 7. The word of God says this. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints and he saith unto me right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the lamb and he that saith unto me these are the true sayings of God. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Revelation chapter 19? The book of Revelation chapter number 19. And notice with me in verse number 9. Notice the phrase, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the the Lamb. And with the Lord's help, we want to discern and explore this subject here, the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you today, I'm just asking that you would give us great wisdom and great discernment, that you would help us to discern and understand this passage, that we may apply things correctly, that we may see what you have in mind and what you have told us here. We know that there is a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of misapplication of this passage in this 
principle help us to be able to discern things correctly, to be able to apply things correctly, and that our faith and trust in you would be increased because of it. Lord, I'm very conscious that I need you today, that right now I need you in a special way. I feel inadequate. I feel ill-prepared. I feel like I'm missing, but I'm so thankful that it's not dependent on me. It's dependent upon you. So the best I know how I surrender myself to you, my mind, my thoughts, my ideas, my ambitions, my goals, I surrender them all to you. And I just ask that you do your own work through your word and just use me as your vessel, as your instrument to get done whatever you want to get accomplished tonight and that we can trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we come up to this, we have to have a distinction right off the bat. Notice if you don't mind, there are two terms. One of them I've already had you highlight in verse number nine, speaking about the marriage supper of the lamb. In verse number seven, notice that there is a different event said the marriage of the lamb. The marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb are connected events, but they are two different distinct events. The marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb are two distinct different events. You say, are you sure about that? Yes, we, we know that we usually associate this. Let's say that we have a couple that's going to get married. And so when they come up, we'll, they'll stand before the preacher. We'll say, wilt thou? And they wilt and wilt thou and they wilt. And then we present them and they're married. Then after the ceremony, usually there is a wedding reception. That wedding reception can be held immediately afterwards, or there could be a time difference between that marriage reception. It could be held at the same place, or it could be held at a different location. Oftentimes, people set a date where they get married, and then the reception to follow maybe a couple hours afterwards to allow people to go, to change clothes, to prepare, to drive to the event, but there is sometimes a distinction of time. It is not the same event. There is a distinction between the actual marriage ceremony and the reception. The same thing is true here, that you're going to have the marriage of the lamb, which we will define in a bit, and then afterwards, at a different location, at a different time, is going to be the marriage supper of the lamb. And the marriage supper of the lamb is our idea of the wedding reception. It is where the bride and groom are now celebrating with their friends this act of marriage. Does it make sense? So with that background in mind, let's kind of dive in a little bit more and get a distinction and understanding of these two events that are very much related, but are distinct in their purpose, their time frame, and what is being accomplished. The first thing I'd like to bring to your attention and describe to you is the marriage of the lamb. The marriage of the lamb. Now, oftentimes in the New Testament, God has described the church as the bride of Christ. Now, the word translated church comes from the word ecclesia, and it is used about 115 times in the word of God. 112 of those times, it is directly referring to a local New Testament church that you could write a letter to, to the church of Corinth, to the church of Colossae, to the churches of Galatia. 
There are some times that the word is used as an institutional sense. But with that institutional sense, you understand that it's still being referred to as a specific place. For example, all kids go to school. When we say they go to school, we have an understanding that they're going to a physical place to go to school. Though we're speaking about the institution. They learn their ABCs at school. Where do they learn it from? Some invisible mystical place? No, they go to a place to learn those things. We're using as an institutional sense. But with that institutional sense, we know that it is referring to a local, real physical place. Does it make sense? So when it refers to the word church in the Bible, most often than not, it is referring to a physical place, whether it's directly saying the place, the church of Colossae, the church of Corinth, or the institutional sense, meaning it teaches about the church as an institution with an understanding that it is a real place. Now there's one time the word church is used for a collective assembly of believers, but that collective assembly of believers will only gather together one place, and that's in heaven. So they're going to be gathered together in heaven as a whole. And why are we making this distinction? Because we want to try to get a good understanding of what God means, that he is speaking specifically about local churches for the most part. Now, (laughs) We know that there is a time frame of the church. Now, don't turn me off now. I'm explaining terms, but we're going to put them together. Someone may stop me right there and then jump to a wrong conclusion. We don't want you to jump to the wrong conclusion. We know that right now we are living in what is called the church age. And the church age has a definite beginning and a definite ending, meaning that you could see the defined borders of the beginning and you could see the defined borders of the ending. The church age has a definite beginning and it has a definite ending. When does the church begin? The church begins with Christ and his disciples. Jesus Christ had called his disciples unto himself and they had started the church. We see Jesus making mention of the church. Matthew chapter 16, that is before the cross. Matthew chapter 18, he speaks about church discipline. Again, it began with Christ and his disciples. Christ began the first church, the assembly together of people to a place. People who have accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. Now, the church age will have a definite ending. When is the definite ending? The rapture. During the rapture, God will call away all of those people who have trusted Christ as their Savior. And we are going to be called away. We will not be here on this earth. The church age has a definite end with a rapture. Now, you say, what about the people afterwards? The people afterwards will be in an event called the tribulation, and there will be many people who will get saved during that time, but they will not be part of the church because the church age has ended. Remember, the purpose of the tribulation is for God to reach the Hebrew people and bring them back to himself and then reach the world through those Hebrew people. He is using a different vehicle, a different institution to get his work accomplished. But the time that we're living in now, God is using the vehicle, the church, to reach the world 
with the gospel to tell the people about Christ so the people could be drawn to a fellowship with God himself. That God has chosen to use the church. And the church age has a definite beginning and a definite end. Now, (laughs) all the people who've been accepted Jesus Christ as their savior in this sense is going to be part of this grand assembly of believers who are going to be gathered together in heaven. This is going to be the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is going to contain any person who has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior within this church age. Anyone who's accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Now with this, understand a little bit more as God paints this picture of a marriage. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. One of the ways that God has tried to dis- G- um, God has tried to describe the relationship between Jesus and the people who have accepted Christ as their Savior has been pictured as a bride. We see this very clearly demonstrated in the book of Ephesians in chapter number five. In the book of Ephesians chapter number five, God is using the backdrop of marriage, which is something we could understand. You could look and understand a relationship between a husband and a wife. There is a special, unique uh, relationship that a husband and wife share. The Lord Jesus Christ is demonstrating this relationship with those people who've accepted Christ as their savior during this church age and Jesus's plans to bring them to himself and work in their life. Notice if you don't mind as this is demonstrated in the book of Ephesians chapter number five. Notice with me if you don't mind in verse 22. Ephesians chapter five verse 22 and let's just walk through this passage. Wives, Submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. So we understand that all of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior in this illustration, we are carrying this picture of a wife. And that as a wife is supposed to submit to her husband as her as the husband being the head, she is supposed to submit herself unto the authority of her husband. Now, let's since we're talking about authority and submission, the world hates that word submission. They carry the idea that they believe submission means uh, a, a putting a value of someone, that they believe that the person whose authority has more value than someone who is submitted. That's not how the Bible places the word submission at all. Jesus submitted himself to God. Was Jesus less of value than God? Not at all. And so it is not a matter of value. It is a matter of function and order. God is a God of order. And God has designed things to function in a certain way. He is placing in the marriage the husband as the one who has to stand before God and give an account. The wife doesn't have to do that. That's a burden off. It's the husband that has to stand before God and give an account. It's not a matter of value, it's a matter of function and order. That God is placing someone in charge and someone has to give an account for that. In this illustration that God is placing, we as the church, those people have accepted Christ as our Savior, have the responsibility to submit to our head for the purpose of function and order. He's the one that tells us what to do and we submit to him trusting he's doing, telling us what we're supposed to do correctly. Notice as it goes on, verse number 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. So Christ is the head of the church. He's the one in charge and we need to submit to him for the idea of order and function. Verse 24, therefore, so because of this teaching, as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. By the way, what verse 24 says is a biblical marriage is supposed to be one that reflects Jesus Christ. And when a marriage is not functioning correctly, it is not going to be the illustration. Let's pause here. Our world today has homes that are broken. And so when a child grows up, they will see God as a reflection of their own father. And so if their own father was absent, they're going to see God as absent. If their own father was mean and vindictive, they're going to see God as mean and vindictive. See, they see this relationship. That's how children are going to be raised. So the Bible here says that as we as Christians need to order our homes in such a way that when people see our homes, they are also learning about Christ. So... As the idea, as the church is supposed to be submitted to God, that needs to be reflected in our homes. How do I learn about submitting to Christ? I look at a biblical marriage and see how it works. Does that make sense? So God here is tying the importance of the home with people's vision, understanding of God and his relationship to us. Does that make sense? So this is more important than what we think. No wonder the homes are under attack. Satan wants to destroy people's view of Christ. And if he could destroy the picture of Christ in a marriage, then he's destroying the picture of Christ as a witness to the community around us. Notice as it goes on in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Notice the responsibility of loving the wives is on the husband. The wives have a different uh, purpose, and that's to honor, and we'll see that here in a second. Husbands are supposed to love their wives. The word love carries the idea here that (laughs) it's the word charity. It carries with it the idea of a love that costs me something with no hope of return. That the husbands are to love their wives even if the wives never return that love. Now, isn't that unfortunately, an accurate picture of our relationship with Christ. He loves us and then we turn around and snub him back. And he loves us anyways. That's the type of relationship that was supposed to be demonstrated that husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. What do you mean he gave himself for it? Jesus Christ died for the church. It was that important for him. That important. And the husbands are supposed to be self-sacrificing. What did Jesus Christ do on the cross? He gave up his life. He gave up his ambitions, his goals, his desires, so that the wife, the church, could live and have the best. One of the problems we have in this world is that husbands are selfish. They're like little children. Mine, 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 my time, my go. I want to do everything myself just as for me, and you just take care of these things. He's selfish. That's not the demonstration of Christ that he's supposed to have. Christ loved us, even gave himself for us. He didn't love us because it was convenient. He loved us when it was inconvenient to him. 
Notice as it goes on, verse 26. Notice this love that he has for the wife. That he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of the water by the word. So in this picture here, that the church, those who have accepted Christ as their savior, are washed clean by the word of God. The word of God washes us clean. And it's because of the love that he shows for us. Now notice this picture, verse 27. That he might present it, the bride, the church, himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Now here's the picture. Imagine that you have a living picture here. You have a bride who is sitting on the chair. And the husband who is loving her, and because of the love that he's pouring out, she is getting more and more beautiful. She's de-aging. The wrinkles are going away. The blemishes are going away. The spots are going away. She's looking more radiant. You understand, husbands, our responsibility is to pour our life into the wife to help her to be the very best that she possibly can be. That's part of that love. I'm loving her so that way she becomes the very best person she ought to be. Of course, we know marriages are all broken and they don't demonstrate this, but this is what it should demonstrate. And this is what God is doing with us is that he's taking the word of God and he's washing us clean. And as he's washing us clean and getting rid of the filth and the dirt that we're going to be presented to God a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, that as God is continuing to love on us and working with us, that we're becoming more holy. We're becoming more and more like Christ, that the filth of the world is washing away more and more and more. Why? Because the love Christ has for the church. And that this is what we as husbands are supposed to do for our brides. To love them in such a way that they are becoming better and better. Their walk with God is increasing. That their demeanor is getting better and better because of the love that is being poured out to them. Notice if you don't mind verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now we have this idea of concern that as the husband is looking <coughs> and he's seeing, imagine if you don't mind this living picture, that there's a wound. And with a wound, it doesn't get better over time, not a deep gash. It gets worse and worse. He'll get infected. He'll get there unless it is treated, unless it is taken care of. With this, that the husband is to love their wives like their own bodies. If I have a broken arm, I'm not going to go, well, I'm just going to let it be. It'll be fine. If I have a deep infection inside of my blood, I'm not going to go, well, you know, I'm good. I'll tough it out. No, I've got to treat it. I need my body. I need to function. Well, the same thing here. A husband needs to love his wife that his wife is hurting. He has a responsibility to take care of her because when he's investing in her, he's taking care of himself because there's a relationship here. It's not the idea, well, you are your own person and I'm my own person and we live in the same house. But if she's hurting, I take that hurt upon me and help take care of it to heal her and to make her better because of the love that I have, knowing that when I'm investing in her, I'm also investing in myself. 
Verse 29. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. All right? We talked about guys being selfish before. No guy is ever going to say, well, I hate you, so I'm just going to just torture my flesh. All right? What we're going to do is say, oh, my, I, my, I want ice cream. I'm going to go get ice cream. I want the temperature cool in my house, so I'm going to make it cool in my house. I'm going to make it so it's comfortable. I'm not going to purposely torture my body just because I feel weird. I'm going to take care of it. And so by extension, I'm investing in my wife and I'm taking care of her. This is the picture of Christ in the church. Verse 31, uh, verse 30. For as we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and the two shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. All right? So we understand that when Adam started, he didn't have a wife. God put him to sleep, took a rib, and put and made himself a woman. Now they were one separated into two, and now they're becoming one again. Now, when you become one, remember that we as humans are made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body, spirit, soul, and body. That we're not just trying to become one in flesh. We also have to become one in spirit and one in soul. Let's define our terms. In our spirit is where we worship and acknowledge God. That if we truly want to get closer with each other, you don't get closer to each other horizontally. What you do is that as they make God their goal and you make God your goal, as you may make God your goal, you will get closer together as you're both going towards God. Trying to go horizontally doesn't work. You won't get closer to each other spiritually unless you're both looking to God and making him your goal. In our soul, we have will intellect and emotion. Will, intellect, and emotion. With our will, we make decisions. With our (laughs) intellect, we think. And with our emotions, we feel. In order for us to become one flesh, we also have to become one in soul. And will, intellect, and emotion. By the way, the only way that happens is if we spend time with each other and converse with one another and speak about these things and come to a same understanding one to another, that we're supposed to become one in spirit, one in soul, and then one in body. And by the way, to try to take two things and to make them one, there's going to be friction. There's going to be issues. There's going to be things that come up. That's part of the process. But the goal is to become one in spirit, one in soul, and one in body. Notice, if you don't mind, verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He reminds you that I'm not just speaking about marriage. I'm speaking about this relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, notice with me in verse 33. This is important. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as herself. Notice this. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Notice this word reverence. This word reverence carries the idea to honor. To honor. What we learn in this passage is that men and women are made differently. And they have different needs. Women need security. 
Women need security. And it is the man's job to make her secure. For example, she needs security spiritually. So we need, as men, we need to provide for her and help her to be established and stable in her walk with the Lord. You know what that means sometimes, gentlemen? Is that we have to guard her Bible reading. My wife has had three kids and there was a, and they're all 14 months apart. That means they were all the same age at the same time. Lots of diapers. And they require lots of attention. In order to take care of my wife spiritually and give her the security she needs in her spiritual life, I had to take the kids and allow her to have quiet time on purpose to go read her Bible. Because otherwise... That Bible reading trying to fix it in in the midst of three kids' diapers all the time becomes nigh impossible. Well, I'll save it during nap time. Well, anybody who's had lots of kids understand nap times when you're trying to get your rest because once they wake up, you got busy again. As a husband to take care of my wife, I have to take the kids off her hand and make sure I guard her spiritual life. In addition, as a husband, my wife needs security and in her soul, in her will, intellect, and emotion. My wife needs to know that I will not leave her nor forsake her. She needs to know that I'm not going to go run away with some other girl. She needs to know that I am with her and she is secure. A lady who's not secure in that is not going to have a stable marriage and things are going to start falling apart. Even if the guy does not do anything, as long as she feels like there's a chance he might, she's not going to be secure. And without that security, that relationship's going to be rocky. She needs to have that security. She needs to have the security saying, all right, we're going to have a home. We're going to be able to have food on the table. You are providing these things so I can have security. Now, we understand for guys, we can live in the back of a truck. We can live in a ditch. We can live in a cardboard box. We're fine. We go hunting. Go, you know, we, we could survive. Bare necessities. Ladies need more than a cardboard box or a back of a truck. They need security. And so us, all of this passage here is teaching that the husband is supposed to take care and make sure that his wife is secure. And that's what Christ does for us. Now the wife has a responsibility and we're going to see that reflected in the church. Verse 33, nevertheless, let everyone in you particular so love his wife, even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, remember I spoke about the difference between men and women, that women have to have security. Women, let me give you secure, uh, the key for men. Men aren't worried about security. We could survive with that. But they need respect. They need respect. What does that mean? That means, are you doing what it takes to help your man feel successful? If a man doesn't feel successful, then he's nothing. I understand that some guy could be the biggest loser and if she keeps kicking him in the dust and say you're nothing but a loser, he's never going to grow. He's never going to think. He's going to always feel like a wimp of a man and never fulfill his role. He needs respect. How can you go by and not puff up his ego, but what can you do to help him feel successful? What can you do to encourage him? What can you do to help clear the way to help him succeed in life in what God has given him to do? 
Now, for us as the church, our responsibility is to reverence the groom, Jesus Christ. We're to give him complete honor, submission to him, dependence upon him, trusting in him. That's our role. His role is to love us and to give us security. Our responsibility is to reverence and to honor him. That's our role. Now, this is what God has given to this idea of this role and his relationship between Christ and the church. Now, we understand that Christ, the church started with Christ and his disciples. We understand that the church will have a definite ending on the rapture when the Holy Spirit is called away. Turn back with me, if you don't mind, to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We're seeing that God had described his relationship with people who've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior as the relationship between a husband and a wife, the bride and the groom. We could see this carried out again in its completion in Revelation chapter 19. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in Revelation chapter 19. Now, in the context, Revelation chapter 19 is where Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth to set up his millennial kingdom. Notice with me in verse number 7, Revelation 19, 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Pause. Notice what it says. What are we supposed to do? Give honor to him. That's our role as the bride. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife had made herself ready. Notice that phrase is come. This phrase is come signifies a completed act. Meaning that by the time Revelation 19 occurs, the marriage of the lamb has already been completed. So when do we have the marriage of the lamb? Well, it's going to be the same events that we find in Revelation chapter 4. Right after the rapture, the events of the church, after the rapture as the tribulation is going on, we understand that we're going to have the judgment seat of Christ, that we're all going to stand before God and give the cross. We're going to get our rewards. We're going to cast our crowns at Christ, Jesus' feet. Another event that happens at that time is the marriage of the lamb. Remember that the church had a definite beginning and it had a definite end. And at that definite end, Jesus Christ has come back to receive his bride to himself and they're going to get married. Wonderful. That's when they get married. Now, <laughs> the wedding occurs up in heaven about the time frame of Revelation 4. In Revelation 19, the marriage has already happened. Now we are moving to the wedding reception. The second thing I'm going to bring to your attention is the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Notice with me in Revelation 19 and verse 7 again. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. And to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. By the way, <laughs> this clean and white is not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed upon us. That our filthy rags have been taken off, and he has put upon him the cloak of righteousness. In fact, verse number 8 again. For to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is 
the righteousness of saints. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has now been put upon us. That is what we're wearing is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse number nine. And he saith unto me. Now remember John is the one writing these things. And so the angel who's giving him a tour is saying, John, write this down. Okay. Write. Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these things are true sayings of God. Now the marriage supper of the Lamb is an event that will involve Israel and will take place on the earth. So the marriage of the Lamb involves the church right after the rapture and takes place in heaven. After seven years of tribulation, Jesus Christ comes back on this earth to rule and reign. And he is bringing back his bride with him. Israel, who's already here because of the tribulation and had lived past uh, and trusting Christ, had lived past the parables that was mentioned of the wheat and the tares of the sheep and the goats. They have now entered into the millennial kingdom with their natural bodies and they are going to be participants of the marriage supper. They're the guest. They're the ones who come to the reception to honor and see this marriage between the lamb and his bride. <clears throat> Most people who study the subject believe that the Old Testament saints, that even though they're included in the rapture, are not going to be part of the bride. Why? Because the church age has a definite beginning and a definite end. And that even though the saints have had to trust God's promises for themselves in the Old Testament, they are not part of the bride. They are part of a different economy. They are going to be guests of the groom. And we'll get into this in just a second. So notice with me, if you don't mind, as the Bible illustrates this, let's turn to a couple passages. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, the gospel record of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ has now begun his earthly ministry. John has already baptized um, Jesus. And notice, if you don't mind, as the people have now come up to John and say, hey, Jesus is starting to get more people than you. He's starting to disciple more than you. Notice John's response. Notice with me, John chapter 3 and verse 25. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be received from him from heaven. Or given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that said, I am not the Christ. Now, pause. Earlier when John was baptizing, remember John's purpose is that he was the forerunner of Christ. His job was to make the way straight. To prepare people to make an easier path for people to accept Christ as their savior. And so John labored before Jesus' earthly ministry preparing people for this. When John was working before Jesus had been revealed, some people came to John and said, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're looking for? And he says, no, it's not me. My job is to prepare the way for the one that's coming, but it's not me. He's bringing this back as people are coming to him and saying, hey, 
<laughs> what about this Jesus guy? He's baptizing more people than you. More people are following him. And John says, that's great. You asked me before, am I the Messiah? And I told you, no, you heard me say that. Why should I be mad when the one that I've been preparing for is starting to get credit for it? When everyone's following him, that was the goal. I don't want people following me. I want them following him. Notice as he goes on. Verse 29 is going to be key. But he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Thus my joy is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Notice what John referred to himself as. Notice in verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom. So notice in a wedding party, you would have the bride and the groom, right? You can't have a wedding without the bride. She is very important. And she needs to have the groom. But they're not the only ones inside of the wedding or the re wedding reception. You're going to have people that stand before the groom. In our day and age, you have the best man. You have the people who are there on the groom's side. You know, you've all been to a wedding and when you go in, they'll ask you, are you on the bride's side or the husband's side? It's not because they're having a fight. It's just, who are you standing next to? Who's the association? John says, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bride. I'm not the groom. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm someone who's aside. This is the Israel's stance. This is where Israel is at. Israel is not the church. There is a distinction. The church had a definite beginning of Christ and his disciples. And it has a definite end of the rapture. All of those who were saved before Jesus Christ came are going to be part of of the friend of the bridegroom. They're going to be the wedding guests. They're going to be there to witness uh, the wedding reception. Then at the tribulation, because the church age is ended, those people who are saved are also going to be wedding guests. They are not going to be the groom and they're not going to be the bride. They are going to be friends of the bride and the friends of the groom. Does that make sense? This is that relationship. So let's kind of put that in mind here. So we know that there are those that are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. These are going to be the friends of the bride and the friends of the groom. So let's just kind of keep this in mind. Uh, actually turn with me to the gospel record of Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, we could see this same idea repeated again. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give a kingdom parable. Remember that we explained a little bit about the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is a parable given that is referring to the fulfilled promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. So we know that Israel is the recipient of prophecies. This is going to be a prophecy that is based off of those promises of the Old Testament, speaking about God's earthly kingdom of the millennial kingdom, of what God is trying to do. Notice with me Matthew 22 and verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. All right, so we're starting to get the picture. Kingdom of God, you have the father who is arranging a marriage for his son. 
getting the players in mind, and sent forth his servants to call them that are bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. By the way, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, were called to the wedding. They were called to come and receive this. But they refused. They rejected the groom. They rejected Jesus Christ. And because of their rejection, there's going to be consequences. Notice it goes on, verse eight, uh, verse 4. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them that are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. And they made light of it, and went their ways, and one to the farm, another to the merchandise. Now notice this. He sent forth servants, verse number four, and verse number three, he sent forth servants. Who are these servants? These are the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets that had been trying to get the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people to come to God, to trust God. Come on, believe in God. God's got promises. We want you to come to supper. Jesus has got things prepared. Come, we want you to come. But what happened is that the Hebrew people rejected the prophets. Uh, Jesus makes reference of it later. Which one of the prophets didn't you kill? You look at all of the prophets. None of them had an easy life. You look at Elijah. Elijah, they were threatened to kill him. He had to go hide out. You had Elisha who had his issues with kings. You had someone like Isaiah who after all of those years of service, some king got tired of him and cut him asunder. You take a prophet like Jeremiah who preached for 40 years, didn't have a convert. Finally, the people came to him and said, Jeremiah, what should we do? He says, stay here in the land and submit to God's judgment through Babylon. They said, ah, we're going to Egypt. We're taking you with me. Don't take me with you. They brought him to Egypt and then Jeremiah kept preaching and they said, ah, we don't like your preaching and they killed him. He didn't want to go in the first place. Which one of the prophets did they not abuse? God sent prophet after prophet after prophet in the Old Testament trying to bring the Hebrew people to himself and they all refused. Notice as this goes on in verse number five. But they, the Hebrew people, made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. God is saying, I sent prophet after prophet to try to bring you to this marriage. I have a marriage prepared. I want to invite you to come. I'm trying to tell you to come. Be here. Be my guest. And they're like, nah, we don't want to go. No big deal. Stop bothering me. Stop telling me or I'm going to kill you. And they killed him. They beat him up. They, they rejected everything that Jesus did to try to bring the Hebrew people to himself. To bring them to this great event of the bride and groom, and the marriage of the Lamb. Notice, if you don't mind, verse 7. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and God was angry. And he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burnt their city. And by the way, that's exactly what God did. That he destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC by the Assyrian nation. He destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC by the Babylonians. Then he did it again in 70 AD by the Romans. That he invited them, he invited them, and they rejected, they rejected. So the king was mad, said fine, and just leveled the whole place. We're seeing this happen. Did this exactly what happened? God had done everything he could to invite people to come to this marriage. Notice if you don't mind verse 8. Then saith he, the king, to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which are bidden are not worthy. 
<laughs> I just leveled their cities. They wouldn't listen to me. So fine, let's find someone else to come. Go ye therefore into the highways and as many as you should find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found both good and bad. And with the wedding was furnished with guests. By the way, now we're starting it into the tribulation period. In the tribulation, <laughs> what happens is that God once again sends servants to try to bid them to this wedding, to bid them to come, 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 come. We want you to go, go to the highways, go to everywhere and go find them and bring anyone and everyone to come. <laughs> Notice with me in verse number 11. And when the king came to see the guest, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he came and saith unto him, Friend, how comest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right? So this is now covering the parables we just hit. In the tribulation, God once again sent servants to go bid everyone that he possibly can come. And then everyone who trusts Christ as their savior gets to have a wedding garment. Back then in the ancient days, in order to go to a wedding, you would dress your best. And oftentimes they would actually set aside a wedding garment for the guest to wear something nice to wear, required a suit, required, you know, carrying your mind, uh, uh, you have to have a suit to come to this restaurant, to come to this place. So there happened to be one person who come in that was not clothed in righteousness. And he's looking around and the king comes, what are you doing here? The guy said, I just thought I'd sneak in. And the king kicked him out. Now we understood this is the parable of the wheat and the tares and the sheep of the goats. That all of those who are saved get to come. All of those who've trusted uh, Christ and his promises during the tribulation get to come. And the guys who did not, they're kicked out and cast down to darkness. Kind of see this parable a little bit now as we're seeing it in the context of the wedding supper and the invitation to everyone else that comes in. All of Israel is invited to come. Now let's pause really quick. So let's kind of cover who's involved in what part. We know that Jesus is the groom. That's the only one who could fit that. If someone trusts Christ as their savior today, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if someone bowed their head and accepted Christ? Would they be a part of the bride? They would because they're saved during this church age. What if uh, Abraham saved in the Old Testament was the friend of God? Would he be a part of the bride? He would not. He would be a friend of the bridegroom. How about someone in the tribulation period? If they get saved, where would they fit? Would they be part of the bride? No, because that church age had ended. They're going to be a friend of the bridegroom. They will come in and be a witness of this marriage supper. Does that make sense? I'm trying to distinguish and put things clear so we have an understanding of who's playing what part in this illustration of what God is trying to do. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, and we see another illustration of this. Now remember, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 is the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus Christ is answering questions about end-time events. Matthew 24 is going to cover the period commonly called the Tribulation, the time of Jacob's troubles. And it is explaining some of the events that are occurring during that seven-year period where God is once again dealing with his Hebrew people to bring them to himself. In Matthew chapter 25, the first several verses first half of the chapter is, is talking about the judgment of the Hebrew people. And the last part of 
Matthew 25 is talking about the judgment of the Gentile people, both of these leading to the millennial kingdom, how that the Hebrew people and the Gentile people are going to be judged, whether it's the idea of the sheep and the goats and the wheat and the tares, or the Hebrew people, whether they've decided to follow after Christ and accept his promises or not. With that in mind, look at once again, we have another wedding type parable, Matthew 25 and verse 1. Matthew 25 and verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forward to meet the bridegroom. All right, let's pause. So here we have ten virgins. These are not going to be the bride. They are going to be uh, for the bride's side, on the bride's side, friends of the bride. And these virgins, which are going to be part of the wedding party, they took their lamps to bring forth a bridegroom. Now let's pause. In the Old Testament days, whenever someone was getting ready to be married, they would not set a date like December 6th at 1 o'clock, everyone show up. What would happen is that when two people were getting ready to be married, as they said, all right, we're going to get married, the groom would then go and build a house for his bride. He would put it together, he would build it. And whenever the groom's father looked at the house and said, it is satisfactory, go get your bride. And it could be at any time. It could be morning, it could be night, it could be noon. You didn't know when it was to come. The bride had to be just waiting for the groom to come. He could come at any time. Not only the bride had to wait for the groom to come, but her wedding party also had to be on standby. Whenever the groom's ready to build the house, he's going to come and we have to be ready to go. This is the setting of this, that the bride, the groom is going to come and these 10 virgins are part of the wedding party. They're there to be friends of the bride and they had to be prepared for this event anytime it could come. Now, most people, because the way that we're wired, if we know that the wedding is at a certain time, we're going to wait to the last minute to prepare. We're going to put everything to the last minute. We're going to wait till that day to maybe see if we got a clean suit or if our shirt needs to be washed. See if it, you know, we wait to the last minute. Well, if you don't know when it's going to happen, you always had to be ready. So in this story, you have 10 virgins who are part of the wedding party. They're not the bride. They're not the groom. They're going to be part of the wedding party to go with and celebrate and be a friend of the bride. First one again, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto 10 virgins, which took their lamps and went forward to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and had no oil in them. All right? So five were wise. How were they wise? They had prepared to go to the wedding. The other ones put it off. They rejected it. Now remember that in the Bible, oil is often a picture of the Holy Spirit. So in this mind idea. You had five that had prepared and had oil in their lamps to keep them burning, burning, burning. Because he could come in the middle of the night. You need to make sure that you had oil in your lamp to go. Five of them said, oh, you know, we got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. And they put it off and they put it off and they put it off. And they did not have oil in their lamps. They had foolishly rejected being prepared for this event to happen. Notice if you don't mind in verse number four. But the wise took uh, the wise 
virgins took oil in their vessels with their lamp. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Meaning that he didn't come right away, so they took naps and they, you know, went on with life and they lounged around. What that meant is that they had to be prepared beforehand. If the bride came at middle of the night, what would you be doing? Sleeping. And then you hear, oh, wait, he's here, he's here. You'd have to hurry up and grab your stuff and go. You didn't have time to go to the store to go get oil for your lamp. You either had it or you didn't have it. Notice as it goes on. Verse 6, and at midnight there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then arose all the, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. They said, hey, wait, you got oil, give us some of your oil. We can't. That's, we can't share. Otherwise, we won't have enough. Notice it goes on, they give the explanation, verse 9. But the wise answered and saying, not so, lest there be uh, not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and when they were ready, went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Meaning because they didn't prepare when Jesus Christ came, they weren't prepared, now it's too late. It was too late for them. The door is shut. They couldn't enter in. Verse number 11. Afterward came also the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Meaning, I don't know who you are. I do not know you personally. You can't come in. Now's the time for us to get to know Christ personally by accepting him as savior, to know him personally. Verse number 13 is the summary. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour when the son of man cometh. Don't put off today. Get accomplish what God has given you to do today because you don't know when he's coming. Now's the time to work. Now's the time not to be lazy, not to be slumber, but to prepare for this event. So with that in mind, first of all, because we're in the church age, do you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior? You get the privilege of being part of the bride in this uh, scenario if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your savior. If Jesus Christ comes back right now, you will not have time to say, oh, now I'll say a prayer. You will not have time to say, wait, I need to go find the Bible. You will not have time to say, I need to make it to a church. You need to be able to have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior before he comes. Before he comes. Same thing with the Hebrew people. Remember, this is the period of right at the end of the tribulation, right before Christ comes back. They need to have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior, recognizing he was the Messiah before he comes back. And we don't know when he will come back. We need to be ready for this time. Now was for the applications. Remember that anyone who came to know Jesus Christ as their savior during the church age is going to be part of the bride. Praise the Lord for it. There is no special stamp, no special baptism, no special password, no secret handshake, no special title that you need on your name. If you've accepted Christ as your savior, you're automatically part of the bride. Who is part of the friend of the bride? 
all those Hebrew people that were saved before Christ started the church or those that were saved during that tribulation period, they are going to be friends of the bridegroom. They are going to be the witnesses. They are going to be the ones celebrating during this time. As for us, as another application, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, what is our role? Our role is to be submissive as unto the wife, seeing that Christ is the head. And our job is to give him reverence and honor because of who he is and the position that we have. That is our responsibility as Christ has the responsibility to give us the security and the love we need to flourish and to grow. We need to make sure in all of this to know our role. What role do we have? Our role is to know Jesus Christ as our Savior and to be part of the bride of Christ. To honor and to, uh, to respect him. For those who are our Jewish friends before the church age and during the tribulation, they're going to be friends of the bridegroom. Now, There is false teaching out there that says that you have to be a part of a certain church to be part of the bride of Christ. And all those who are not part of that church is going to be uh, part of the bride. That's not what the Bible says. And we have to be careful with that because then people will start inspecting your baptism and the preacher and whatever, and they make it a mess. Remember, God does everything in sincerity and godly, uh, in simplicity and godly sincerity. We make things complicated. And I have seen churches take out their role and see a chain leak succession of mama church, granddaughter church, and go all the way up for hundreds of years to train this. And if that, if you're not part of this chain leak succession, your baptism's invalid, your church membership's invalid, everything else is invalid. You know what that does is it makes things complicated and puts a weight on people that God never intended to have. A wedding should be a great time. Not a time where we're trying to uh, make things very complicated. I'm trying to help things be simple for us. I'm so thankful for the simplicity of God's word. And if we're keeping things simple, our role as the bride is to allow the groom to love on us, to prepare for this wedding day, and to honor and reverence him during this time. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you could give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.